Hello everyone, Ian Wishart here, and it is my distinct pleasure to welcome you to Season 4 of the Take A Pew podcast. Now, despite my best endeavours, I am still joined by the great mystery that goes by the name of Simon Clark. Yes, hello dear listener. New season, eh mate? When did we all start using the word season? Always used to be called a series. Yeah, that's true. But it's just the thing these days. And anyway, season is a very Christian word. Christians are always talking about being in a season, a season of reflection, a season of revival and so on. Weird. Although we are called to be the salt of the earth, I suppose. Yes, and I suppose you're going to pepper the conversation with eternal truths. Anyway, talking of, if not actually purveying comedy, we have a proper comedy maestro to meet today, don't we? Indeed we do. None other than Paul Carenza. A bit different from most of our other guests, who's is only an occasional preacher in the Church of England. Oi, nothing wrong with us occasional preachers, mate. Oh yeah, sorry mate. Anyway, apart from that, Paul is a stand-up comedian, a co-writer on some much-loved radio and television programmes, including Miranda, Not Going Out and Top Gear, a radio presenter, a podcaster, an author, an historian, the list goes on. In fact, he's a veritable polymath. Yes, and I understand that he's also an expert on Old Testament books named after women. So he's not only a polymath, he's a polyester. Oh, that's terrible, mate. What, like the rest of the amateur's comedy gold? Yeah, fair point. Anyway, as a marine biologist, I was particularly interested to see that one of Paul's books is called Shark. No, I think it's actually called Hark. And it's actually an excellent book about the history of Christmas. With, as far as I recall, absolutely no mention of fish. Elasmobranchs. You what? Sharks are elasmobranchs. Well, easy for you to say, Jacques Cousteau. Anyway, I think we should quit while we're behind and get on with the show. I think you're right, mate. Right then, this is the Take A Pew podcast with Paul Carenza. Paul Carenza. find us today here at Take A Pew Towers, another home gig. Hurrah! And we've been joined by our splendid guest, who hasn't had to travel too far, only from nearby Guildford. Yes, it's Paul Carenza. Paul, thank you for coming to see us, and please, Take Take A Pew. pew. Well, thank you. It's a marvellous pew to be taken. Hello, Paul. It's great to meet you. Perhaps Mm. you could just introduce yourself to our lovely listeners. Indeed. Uh, I presume they're lovely. I've not met all of them. Um, Most of them. But, yeah, my name is Paul Carenza. Um, I'm a comedian, writer, I mean all the stuff you said at the top really, you know, I'm a person, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I have two children, I have one wife, which I think is probably the correct way of having those numbers, and uh, I'm, I think, I don't know how old, I'm mid-40s, I've lost (laughs) count, I I think I'm 44-ish, something like that. Yeah, that's uh, close enough. I'm loving life. Wonderful, I'm very pleased to hear it. Now, this may be a new season of Take A Pew, but we've stuck with our winning formula. So we'll be chatting about how life has brought you to where you are today, cantering through your favourite things, enjoying your fabulous Take A Pew dinner party, and bringing your illumination in Is It True and your spiritual pearl of wisdom. Yes, and I'm especially pleased to confirm the return of Simon's random question. Yes, well, as I said, we've stuck to our formula. Anyway, it's going to be great. Let's begin at the beginning. Where did life start for you, Paul? I understand it was somewhere not entirely full of sheep. 
It wasn't entirely full of sheep. No. No, half full of sheep is all it was. Uh, well, Cornwall, which has got sheep in it, I suppose. I mean, we're pretenders to, the, to Wales. We look up there in awe at their language and their assembly and the like. And uh, yeah, I was born in Cornwall in the late 70s. And uh, I, it wasn't, I mean, I, I, I'm sure at some point we'll touch on health or medical stuff at some point because I talk about it a lot in my comedy anyway. But I was, um, I was whisked to Great Ormond Street Hospital straight away. So I um, was born essentially with some organs on the outside, which should have been... I mean, they're called internal organs. Aren't <laughs> the clues yeah. in the, the name. Yeah. So, um, and Cornwall couldn't quite cope with this, so they right. whisked me in an ambulance from Cornwall to London. It's a normal, um, just a normal ambulance. Gosh. It wasn't a helicopter. I think, I don't, no, I don't think they had you helicopters don't back then. I don't think, back uh, in the 70s. This is exactly... <laughs> I think we didn't even have a motorway. So I think it was, I was, uh, I like to think I passed Stonehenge, but not the last time oh, in my yeah. life I passed notable stones. Um, but um, <laughs> it was, uh, let's not go there. But no, so I, I I was back and forth between Cornwall and London from the early days, which is probably why my accent is less Cornwall and more London. But there you go. Okay. Still a tell the tale. Quite a hurdle to overcome though. It must have made quite a difference to your very early years. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't, obviously, you know, when your memories kick in, about four or five is it something like that but I, I do have memories of being in hospital um, but particularly up until the age of about five six or seven I was I think I had nine, 99 operations by Ooh. the time I was five I was told so they could have found one more thing yeah, to do that's disappointing to make a hundred wouldn't it be more yeah. but I, I think I was in, in Great Ormond Street for sometimes a couple of months at a time but mostly out of it I wasn't one of these I wasn't in there full time but it did mean that I was I think I was a term late starting school for example I joined in January and all the other kids had made friends and decided who they're going to marry and all that stuff. Oh, so I've been catching up ever since, really. You miss your first term. That's it. You know, you become a comedian. There's nothing. There's no jobs for you <laughs> if you miss that first crucial term. You know, it's all stemmed from there. But it's all kind of stabilised, etc. Stabilised. I go back yeah. once a year to make yeah. sure that everything's still where it should be and everything's fine. But um, yeah. yeah, so it's all right, really. But the the weird thing is that that the the condition I had quite a rare condition called extrophy, which is like. Uh, X trophy out literally means yeah. out of body. It's an out of body experience. We normally think of the soul, not organs. But um, there aren't many. I think it's one in a hundred thousand births have had what I've had. It's not many. And they did a survey, a poll, or whatever you call it, a study of people with my condition. And um, a third of them go into healthcare, and a third of them go into entertainment, which is <laughs> oh. really it's a high statistic, isn't it? So I think basically, if you're in kids' hospital. You either want to go and help people at the end of it or just cheer them up, you know. So there are like three professional comedians, a clown, a couple of cartoonists. You know, you just want to go out and forget normal jobs. You want to go and tickle people. Isn't it funny? Anyway, so... Your family unit back then, what was it yeah. like? I had well, I had a family unit. I had That's a, good. A, yeah, a mum, a dad, a brother, a younger brother. So I didn't have a brother then. He arrived a few years later. And um, yeah, and then we had dogs and cats and all that sort of thing. So and my parents, we, we, we moved up from Cornwall then to, to Surrey. And then sort of embedded ourselves in in village life, traditional village life. Our village was one church, six pubs, and most weeks you'd get around all of them. And uh, and my parents weren't particularly uh, churchy people; they were village people. So one was a policeman, one was a, a hut builder. <laughs> but um, but it meant yeah. that anything to do with village life, I we, we were doing. So I was in the choir and the youth group and the scouts, um, and all you know, the church was the hub really. And I ended up becoming a Christian, essentially, because my parents would send me off for free childcare, I think. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, I came back going, this is good stuff, this. And they're going, well, that wasn't the plan, but okay. So I'm the only Christian in the family that I know of. But um, So it was quite an early thing, the whole church thing. Oh, God yeah, well, things. I guess I was doing regular church stuff from about eight, nine, ten onwards. I was sort of, I was head chorister in the church choir and stuff. And 
you know, um, I remember distinctly, they, they said to me as head chorister, you can sing the first verse of Once in Royal David City this Christmas. And I went, you know, I would, thank you very much. And then it got to like the week before Christmas. They went, you ready to start practicing? I went, yes, I'm ready. <laughs> and then I was out of the choir within, you know, a month because the voice just went before. So I never got to do all that stuff. But what was great about the church I was at, uh, and I would commend this to other churches, is one or two people there, they just got me to write stuff like comedy sketches. You know, can you do um, an alternative Christmas comedy sketch? You know, and I was like, 11 or 12 or whatever and and weirdly at the church i'm at now they've they've started to do similar with with our kids you know there's a guy there who goes actually you know to my kids you know do you want to do this version of joseph and his dream coat with the, with the puppets or whatever and and we're not going to give you a script you go away you've got a week to come up with a sketch based on you've got to read the bible passage you 12 year old and 10 year old you're going to write this you're going to rehearse it you're going to perform it on sunday and just give them total trust which is i'm glad they've you know, the, the church leader's done that because I wouldn't trust my kids with that. <laughs> but then you think, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, and it's because of that sort of trust. That's the sort of trust I was given to do regular regular sketches and things. And it got me being a comedy writer. I, I don't think I'd have done it if it weren't for those one or two people at that church who said, yeah, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll trust you with this. You it's know. amazing, isn't it, actually? Yeah. What a way to start. And so there was lots of activity. What about mm. the spiritual side? It's a bit of a grand word for a, mm. a young person, yeah. but yeah. was... When did that fall upon you? Well, I, I think I've got a specific moment, really. It was by a canal side in, Bur- in rural Birmingham um, because I did these annual, was it Pathfinder and Cypher and these youth youth get- getaway things. Uh, there were like 40 teenagers on, on a few canal boats every year. And, uh, you know, they, again, just trusted us not to fall in and drown and all that stuff. We, we And it was just, you know, some young adult leaders and stuff and, and loads of other people my age. And most people probably there, you know, were having fun and just doing activities, and the the spiritual stuff was probably not necessarily everyone's um, primary um, thing they got out of it. But it was for me, and, and certainly a few others. You know, there were maybe a good a good core of us, I would say, who I was in touch with afterwards, who were going, yeah, this that was really transformative in our faith journeys. And I remember distinctly about three years in, I I, I felt it was like an alpha course, but one week a year. You know, so one year it would be like, who are the disciples? What's that all about? Another year it's, you know, <laughs> let's look at the book of Job or I don't know, whatever it is. And about three years in, I thought, okay, I think I kind of, I know enough. I've heard enough. I understand enough. I get this. And that makes sense to me. And I and working out what prayer was and all that sort of thing and thinking this is, this is about, you know, that relationship with our creator. That's kind of nice. That's kind of cool. And I sort of... You know, look, I didn't look at other religions, particularly like I was window shopping. But the more I thought about it, I thought Christianity, that's the one for me. Because it is it is a, it makes sense um, that when I prayed, I felt I was listened to. I felt God responding. And I felt like this is the one where you you have this personal relationship with our divine creator, not distanced, but he's been through this. And, you know, you, you feel like you've got this co-passenger in the giant motorway of life. Wow. Sounds like a very deep-thinking young man, which brings me to our first regular feature on the show, which is... What were you like at school? Were you a little bit geeky? Or were you a little bit freaky? Or were you a little bit cheeky? What were you like at school? 
Yes, Paul, what were you like at school? <laughs> a bit cheeky or geeky. Yeah. I, get, I had bladder problems. I was a bit leaky. Oh, <laughs> but no, I was... Um, Very nice. I was a bit... I was geeky, a bit geeky, but I think because of the medical stuff, um, I was... And it's, to be honest, by that age, I was... You know, once you get past the first couple of years of school, you know, you're 8, 9, 10, 11, up to 13, 14, whatever, I, I was making the medical stuff work for me. You know, I was going, I've got this weird medical yeah. condition that the teachers find a bit icky. I can get off sport for years. And I did, you know, and uh, not only that, my my stage name is Carenza. But I, my real surname is Young. Paul Young, the 80s pop star. Can't have that name. I have to pick a new one. Yeah, of course. But as a young, anyone with who's got, if you're listening and you've got uh, your surnames, you know, a Y or a Z, you know full well that any roll call register, and you, you are waiting till the bitter end. And in sport, you know, they're doing page after page of the register. And I remember distinctly that mine was the one name at the top of page three or page four or page eight, whatever it was. And once that page went missing, they never bothered <laughs> to replace it, you know. So I, I didn't do any sport for years. And like now I'm mid-40s and making up for it going, God, I need to get some exercise in, you know. But as that's when I started the comedy writing. Um, you know, I was doing it a bit at church, but also then at school, drama clubs, being a bit of the you know, enjoying the nerdy stuff. So, in answer to your your finally jingled question, a little bit geeky. Perfect. Were well, you not cheeky as well? Do you give answer back a bit to the teacher? Well, I was. I mean, I wasn't the class clown. You hear no. this a lot with comedians. I think the pro yeah. comedians were often not the class clown. We're often the ones a bit just to the remove from the group, lobbing in a quick, you know, a well thought through heckle or one line, and ducking down. <laughs> we don't want to be the one to be spotted uh, who, who said it. And then you look around and, and that was us. I think so that, that was me. You know, I was Brilliant. like the, uh, the the joke writer for other people. Like, you know, you could say this, they'd say it, they'd get into trouble, that sort of stuff. And you went yeah. to quite a posh school in Guildford, yeah. I think, didn't you? Yeah, posh-ish. Yeah. Guildford Grammar, Royal, the Royal, Royal Grammar School, the RGS Royal Guildford. Grammar, yeah. yeah, but it was there that I started doing things like we had an annual uh, charity day assembly where you could, where the, kid, the, the school pupils got to write a sketch for the assembly. And... And what, and again, I'm, I'm sort of charting my comedy writing journey as well here, I think. But they, me and another one or two pupils were tasked with writing this sketch, lampooning the teachers. And I remember distinctly the teachers were looking at me like, we trust you, we don't trust them, they'll go crazy. But you, you're kind of, you're kind of funny, but you're kind of sensible enough as well that you're not going to go crazy. And sure enough, there were a couple of the other students who were sort of ready to out certain teachers <laughs> in their school hall and I was like <clears throat> you know interrupting and stuff so I think very early on then I was kind of getting a sense of not only just where the limits are you know yeah. just kind of pushing a little bit making it funny but also and what I still do as a stand-up today making sure that everyone's included and one of my big things is always trying to, to, to unify room you know I don't I'm, some comedians just go for their audience and are happy to divide and lose everyone else. I, I want to walk into a room and just make as, as many people happy as possible. I don't want to lose people. So yeah. that was coming in there Always too. the professional by the sound of it. So there's no sport. You spent some time writing. Were there any other hobbies and interests that took up a lot of your time? As I mean, film. I suppose like a lot, I used to like my films. I used, I used to do a film. That's uh, handy. A film podcast. <laughs> I, used to, I was one of the, in the very early days of podcasting, from about, what, 2000 and, Three, four, I started a film podcast called Movie Banter, which is probably still out there somewhere. We've not updated it for years. But as a result, I used to see every, not just, you know, I just did every film, every single film. I wasted my 20s, essentially. <laughs> well, I just started gigging. I just started doing my first stand-up gigs and I'd get booked across the country. And in that time where I see comedians now who are spending their days writing that sitcom and furthering that career, working on their craft, developing their shows, I was watching 
four films a day <laughs> than just coming back to review them on a podcast, which was great fun. But I feel my 20s were misspent in cinema. Excellent. Well, I look, look forward to coming back to films in our, my favourite things in a short while. But just before we move on to those uh, those 20s that you, you talked about, we have a second yeah. regular feature for yes. you. And that is... <laughs> What's your fondest childhood memory? What's your fondest? What's your fondest of all your childhood memories? What's your fondest? What's your fondest? Oh. Yes. Your jingles are the best. You know that, don't you? I mean, of any podcast in the world, yours are the best. <laughs> just just know that. Right, know that. Yes. Fondest childhood memory. Fondest childhood memory. Um, yeah, flattery won't get me out of the question, will it? No. Um, I, I don't, it's tricky to say, isn't it? Partly because there's one. I bet there's one. I, I bet can't there's something think of, came straight to mind. I can't think of superlatives. Like I, the, the best of anything, I find mm, really okay. tricky. So in terms of you said about the film stuff, I find it really tricky to do a top five. Right. I could, I could do you my top, you know, my number eleven to sixteen probably, but the top of anything is tricky. But um, I would think when I was in hospital, quite often when I came out of hospital, I'd be in for a few days or a few weeks. And near Great Ormond Street Hospital, sadly no longer there, beautiful magic shop called the Magic Spot. And, uh, and my dad would take me in there and, you know, the guy, it was one of these sort of really dusty old shops. Where Mr. Ben like. It was really like, the guy literally yeah. had a fez. He literally <laughs> had a, you know, the door dings as he opened and he, he'd come out and everything's covered. It looked like an old sweet shop, except instead of sweets, it's tricks, you know. <laughs> and he'd show you a couple of tricks and then I'd buy one. And, uh, and I, I still love magic. I'm not very good at it. But that was, I used to love going in there and picking out that's a really nice. cool yeah. magic trick. That was yeah. always my little treat. I think that's. I think that counts as a very valid, lovely childhood memory. Well done. So well, yes, you talked about so school. What happened after school? Was it any university nonsense and stuff? After school, I go home, have a bit of dinner. Yeah. Um, what about Wednesday. Was Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. No yeah. sport, obviously. That never no, no, no. Uh, I got out of that one. Uh, so school. Yeah, I did that, and I think it's it just in the last couple of years of school, seventeen, eighteen. I, I discovered theatre and acting, and I was just given a couple of chances to do school plays. I'm fairly late. I didn't do much before that, but particularly we had a drama festival at school. It was like, you know, the pupils could write your own play or, or sketch shows. And I, I wrote a play, a comic play, which um, we then took to Edinburgh Festival a few years later. And I still, it's one of my favourite things I've written. It was a farce, basically. It was a, it was a, um, a farce that was double booked with a murder mystery on the same show. So I, I wrote this entire play, which was essentially an Agatha Christie who'd done it and a sort of classic um, door-slamming, vicar-in-the-closet kind of farce, you know. And they're both double-booked, and they both have to make their plays work together. <laughs> and I love doing it. It was a cast of about 10, 12 of us. And that gave me the encouragement to keep doing that at university. I did a theology degree, though, at university, because oh, right, I okay. thought, you can't really get a job, you know, just doing comedy and writing and acting, can you, surely? And I'm still working that one out. So I did theology for three years, but really at university, I... I was off at the theatre a lot mm. and doing as many plays, as much comedy acting. I still hadn't discovered stand-up at that point. I left uni, I did drama school for a year, realised I couldn't act. And by that point, I was like 22 and my parents are going, what are you going to be? Come on, vicar, theologian, actor? What? What, what is it? You know. And then I, I, I saw an advert for a stand-up comedy evening class when I was just leaving drama school. And I thought, I'll try it once. I'll try stand-up once just to get some more comedy acting roles. I tried it once and I, I fell for it. I just thought, this is it. This is, forget acting when you've got to learn lines and audition and that. 
stand up you could pick up the phone and certainly then you could get on a comedy club gig the next week you know they just were, were eager to have you so um that was about 21 22 right. the start of that and uh and, and those were happy years you know the early 20s i was up in london just on the weekend actually and i was passing um little side streets in kind of soho and central london where i used to do gigs I thought, oh, is that still there? You know, these little rooms that would just fit 15 people and, and two-thirds of them were comedians and they'd have literally 14 acts on and you could double treble up in a night. You'd ra- you know, you'd go on early, race across town, do another one. I loved doing that. And there were some very eccentric comedians, you know, like the Jimbo, who's still gigging today, who used to walk on stage as the perpetual open spot. He'd never got a paid gig as far as I know. And, you know, he'd walk on stage and leave via the window and go down the drain pipe, and that was his, the end of his show. But really, the bonkers acts that never touched live at the Apollo, but you know, but they are the the lifeblood of the comedy circuit. Yes, yeah. So they were happy days in the twenties doing that. You mentioned the vicar word there. Was that any, mm. ever a serious thought on the horizon? I think it was. A, it was a serious thought later. I only only a serious question. I think yeah. it was, I never. I've never asked that question of myself and had a positive answer. <laughs> but I've questioned it a few times, and okay. I questioned it again in the pandemic. Actually, you know, the stand-up gigs went, but it, that made me question again. You know, my my mid forties, going, oh, is it? Is, ooh, never too late. And I oh. thought, but then whenever I've kind of asked myself this or discussed it with others. I remember years ago, the Bishop of Oxford, I was at an event he was at, and he said, oh, you do events for, you do comedy shows for churches, don't you? And I went, yes, I do. And he said, yes, you should do less of those, more more back on the circuit, bit more in the secular, you know, go and you're meant to be there, I think. Oh, right, okay. And I think, and he, I, mean, I mean that in a loving way, because I think that he had a point that it's, the church gigs are nice. I love doing shows for churches. If I just did those, though, and didn't do anything in the sort of mainstream general market of the comedy industry... Then um, I think it'd be a shame because it's I, I I'm you know I'm one of the trustees of Christians and Media for example and we we are want to be Christians out there in this industry of the media and the comedy industry and making sure that we are there doing what we do the best we can or whatever God wants us to do never say never you do yeah, some preaching though, don't you, you do some yeah. occasional stuff don't you occasional preacher at my church like an occasional table we wheeled out for <laughs> special occasions but uh, yeah I've I just started doing that last year so I've I've preached probably. Uh, a dozen or so times maybe and um yeah that's been really rewarding and has drawn on um you know the going back to the theology degree again yeah. picking out my notes from the loft and things like that although I, one vicar said to me like oh you're starting the preaching thing most preachers starting out i'd say you know make sure you add a, add a few little jokes in there to engage in. <laughs> with you fewer jokes cut the jokes out <laughs> you know it's not a gig thank you must remember that Yes, it must be. Tempt- it's good to include a bit of humour, though, isn't it? I, think. I hope it is. It, yeah, I think. <laughs> but I, I, what I find, I am fascinated with how preachers use comedy. You mm. know, and a lot of them. I think the standard is, which certain people do, is they open with a joke, and then find the tenuous link to the theme. You know, sometimes really tenuous. You know, it's uh, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? Well, today's story isn't about chickens, but it is about <laughs> lambs. The lamb of and you go, oh come on, please. You know, but I, I'm fascinated with those who do it differently. And one I've noticed, and I don't know if I'm just reading this into what he does, he's never told me specifically, but Stephen Gorkroger, mm-hmm. uh, Baptist uh, speaker, and I've seen him at various huge events where he won't start with a joke, but he is funny, he yeah. kn- and he knows he can do funny. And what he'll do is he'll read the room and realise just when he's losing the audience, which kind of, and it's nothing against him because it 
we all lose the audience at some point. And he'll realise, and he'll stop halfway through a point, and he'll go, I'm losing you. Right. And he launches into a funny thing. We all laugh. Oh, right. Just And then he goes, I've got you again. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. And Blatantly he carries on. tells a joke, yeah. So he just reads the room really <laughs> yeah. well. Very He's a, I mean, you get natural performers. Yeah. And he's one of them. To be honest, I don't think, I'm not a natural performer. I'm a, I always think comedians, you're either a writer and a performer or a performer and a writer. And I think I'm a writer who performs. Mm. Um, you know, there are certain people who just have the funny bones um, and the rest of us have to sort of do our best to imitate that, yeah. I think, you know. So it's, I mean, it's a bit of a struggle stand-up, isn't it? I was just, uh, as I was saying before, just finished rereading your first book. I think it was your first book, wasn't it? So a Comedian Goes Into a Yeah, that was the first one, yeah. Ten yeah. years ago, so. Oh. But again, relating to earlier days, I guess. And it's it's just endless mm. hours on motorways. And, oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's uh, For not very much money. Yeah, I forget which the comedian it was who, who said, you know, basically we are paid as comedians for, for the driving. You know, we do the gig for nothing. It's just the travel to get there and the, the all that stuff. You know, we... It, it's, it's... And in fact, there's another comedian I know who is a lorry driver. And if he can, he books a gig in and then goes, right, what can I... Uh, what haulage can I take to where that's near that? You know. But it is... Um, yeah, and again, I think the other thing since the pandemic, I, I don't... Do I have the appetite now to drive to... To Hull and back, you know, for a for a gig. When I started out, I remember distinctly. I think that you know, you take every gig you've got going. And one of the early moments I thought, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore, was when I went to Newcastle and back in one night for a five minute unpaid open spot when the entire audience just talked all the way through it anyway. And you think that was like a ten hour round trip. I got home at four in the morning <laughs> for nothing really, for no real gain. Um, but thankfully, that's not so much the case yes. now. And looking at the diary, I'm, I'm actually I'm going further from home than I usually do in the, in the next six months or so. Just the way it, the way it falls, you know. Yeah. But it is a, it's a lot of life on the road, you know. But I like it's why podcasts like yours yeah. are so marvelous because they can keep us entertained as we go. Yes, yes. Well, I'm sure some podcasts can, but <laughs> <laughs> they haven't got your jingles. You've got the jingles. <laughs> there we go. So many stranded individual and prolific output in all sorts of, of areas, which we'll come on to. So the right, so we talked about the television writing, I guess, yeah. is the glamour end of the market. It doesn't feel glamorous when, no, you, when sure you're it writing it, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the end product is always nice yeah. to see. Yeah. 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 How did you get involved in that? Well, it's a really linear route. All of yeah. the, uh, the writing I've done, when I started out doing stand-up at the same time I was sending off jokes for radio shows and... BBC are great at always having an open door show. Anyone can write for it. So right now, um, there's a show called Our DMs Are Open, I think it's called. There's another one called The Skewer. Anyone can write for The Skewer. And one called Breaking the News in BBC Scotland. So when I started, it was the news headlines with Roy Hudd yeah. and June Whitfield and Chris Emmett. And at the time, it was the longest running topical comedy show anywhere in the world. I thought, if I get a job on that, they'll never cancel it. It's a job for life. And I finally got the first joke on what turned out to be the last episode ever. <laughs> and I killed it off. But the main thing is then you know that producer. The producer then moved to um, the news quiz. And then I sort of got a bursary thing. to like a uh, They have a special prize that once a year they give a writer or two this sort of in-house. You've got a job for a year paid for by the department. You work on all their shows, you know, all their comedy shows. So I did that for a year. And that was great to work on. You know, the Now Show and Dead Ringers and bit of sitcom and everything taste of everything and while I was there in-house at BBC Radio Entertainment the lift doors opened Lee Mack walked out I was aware of him but he wasn't really famous he I didn't know him at all and he, Lee's always joking he doesn't have an off switch so he walked through the lift doors and he said I have a sketch show where are the writers 
And I just went, yeah, I'll do it. And my writing partner was in the toilet at the time, so he didn't get the job, and I did. <laughs> so the lesson there is hold it in, because you never know when those sliding, literally sliding yeah, those moments yeah, may happen. Absolutely. So yeah. that was so I, I worked with Lee Mack on his Radio 2 sketch show for a couple of years. Then he moved to TV for Not Going Out, which we're still making 15 years on now. I think yeah. we've maybe got one more series in it. You never know. One or two. But um, And then I recommended Miranda Hart for a part in that. Uh, who I'd seen on the telly, she was great. So she got in that and then she got her own sitcom. So I worked with her. And from then on, it's just every single job I've ever had in, in telly is just that producer moved to there and that person moved to there. It's just people. Being talented is at least third on the list. You know, being available and being nice, I think are one and two. Yeah. Certainly I've found yeah. anyway. Yeah. So when you contribute to one of those shows, for example, mm. how you personally... How, how much do you contribute? Does it vary a lot? Yeah, totally. It really varies. And that's what I always think at the start of any co-writing job, you've got to establish really early on what they want, really. Because not going out for Lee and Miranda, for example, both of them, generally, you'd get a script that's half written at least, if not more, by, by them or someone else. And with lots of highlighted bits. And they really just want you to look at the highlighted bits, add your alternatives. And sometimes that might be, we need a scene that does this information, you know. Uh, so with Miranda, for example, I did a lot of the the flashbacks. You know, she'd have a, you know, oh, it's not like that time on that first date when I did this crazy thing. And uh-huh. then I had to write what that would be. Because she could then focus about moving the story on and not get bogged down in what that funny thing might be, you know. So lots of filling in the blanks. For those ones and it's got a team is it i mean do they it's about four or five of us do you sit around a table and... well both so not going out we've we've done 13 well, seasons or series <laughs> yes who knows what we call it nowadays yeah. but see the first two of those we did around, around a table and after that we was like just go home we'll just do it all remotely from here right on. do you have a, a particular line that you're most proud of oh my word radio um, and television career a line. I don't know about. A, I mean, or there must be. There must be. I'm, I know I with think. Miranda, I was particularly pleased of. Actually, a couple of couple that leap to mind. In Miranda, one of her flashback things were the kind of crazy games that she plays with her friend Stevie, and I suggested a game of Where's Miranda, like Where's Wally, but she dresses up as Wally, and you've got to find her. And then when you, I sort of, I went to the recording of that, and I saw that they'd filmed this giant crowd scene with her dressed up as Wally, and I go, oh, there you go, that's my bit, it's nice, they've made an effort. And then similarly with um, with not going out, there's a location scene. I think they were camping, and it was a camping episode, and uh, and there was some sort of car. The car was meant to crash into a tree, career off the road and crash into a tree, and then they needed a kind of a funny line, a little punchline at the end of that, and I, I suggested. I wrote I, in my little version script, I said, um, car is turned upside down and Tim Vine, when he was in it, just says, and handbrake on, because it was, I think he was teaching her to drive. I think that was the idea. So I thought, and handbrake So it's quite a nice little bumper. And I thought nothing else of it until then I watched it back uh, again at the recording. And the, and you see this insert of, wow, they, they, they turned a car upside down and crashed it into a tree. 
based on that thing that I put in. You know, it's it's, it's quick and easy to write it. Yes. It's when they actually you think, oh, that's cost them thousands of pounds probably. What power just, you wield? I know yeah. it's worrying, isn't it? Yeah. So where do your ideas come from? Just just come into your head and you just think that's good. I'm going to go with that. Or do you tend to think a few options through? And well, all of those really. They're all yeah. because I'm co-writing. It's all based on the setups. Yeah. There, you just got to work out the punchline. So with with that handbrake on thing, for example, because it was about yeah, it was Tim teaching. I think his ex to to drive. So it was driving lessons. So with that, you end up just listing everything you can think yeah. of doing a driving lesson. So it's, you know, banging a pen on the dashboard, it's whatever it might be. You just list all that stuff. And 90% of it, you'll never use. 99% you'll never use. But you find the one thing that just fits and you go, okay, that, that's kind of nice. You know, so it's a lot of wastage, really. You know, when you're writing, especially, and go back in the stand-up, you do an Edinburgh Festival show. So I did a show about the Book of Genesis, for example. I did a retelling of the Book of Genesis via stand-up. And part of the reason for that was to get the Bible out there in a secular sort of mainstream way. But also the setup's done for you then. So you're then going, right, Noah and the Ark, what funny things? How do I how do we get this across in an amusing way? You start listing things, you go, okay, it's like okay, it's a zoo, it's floating, and all that sort of stuff. You're just listing constantly. And and all all comedy is it's it's connecting the dots, really, isn't it? It's, I think it's sort of saying this thing, if there's an equation to comedy, I think it's X nearly equals Y. Like this thing looks a bit like that thing, you know. So when Michael McIntyre's opening the spice cupboard and pers- personifying all the spices or whatever, you know, you're saying this bizarre situation is a bit like this bizarre situation, you know. So um, um, one of my favourite bits, like James Acaster on What the Week years ago had a thing about Brexit, likening Brexit to a, a herbal tea bag. You know, he said, do you leave it in or out? And he said, us in Europe... It's, we're like that tea bag, you know. You can stay in and be part of a stronger cup of tea, or you can take it out and now you're, you know, you're you're stronger on your own, but you're, the the cup of tea is weaker and the tea bag goes straight in the bin. So um, it's finding ways of yes. just connecting the dots to tell those stories. Yeah. Yeah. And with the stand up, do you have like a list of kind of themes that you're going to talk through that evening? Do you, is it all quite carefully planned and then? Yeah, I've got on my phone a notepad of of in theory jokes I said jokes yeah. but they're just sort of themes and you look through and you think oh yeah well I'll, I'll try and do that 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 and that and I always forget you know I always do the first yeah. couple of bits you respond to a thing in the room go down a rabbit hole forget those three new jokes I meant to try And but stand up of course is a work it's all a work in progress there's never a finished product unless you're doing a big big touring show but for me that's the thing I'll, every gig is just about as good as you can tonight ready for the next one so you, you talked about Christians in media and mm. you mentioned Tim Vine then, that just made me think of, because there's, there's quite a, a cadre, I'm not sure if that's a, a word that actually exists. I like it. Of, of Christians in the comedy sort of world, isn't there? There's you and Tim and there's John Archer, I suppose, as well, yeah. and Andy Kind we've had on the show, mm. and Milton Jones and Bobby mm. Ball. And, you know, yeah. Is there a gang? There are, there are sort of, we've, we've tried, we've occasionally tried to formalise and it's sort of occasionally worked a bit and then not. We, we need to try again, really, because I think years ago when I sort of started out, I realised that Milton and Tim, Sally Phillips, Joe Enright, they were already going and they were meeting up now and then. And then they stopped meeting around about the time that I started going. I don't know, <laughs> I don't take it personally. We had a few goes at doing the odd pub meet for comedy writers as well as comedians and then on on Facebook, we've got a little Facebook group of, of for mostly for comedians and up and coming comedians who are Christians. So I'd say that I mean there are about twenty or, or thirty that I'm in fairly regular contact with, like you know once or twice a year that we'll gig together or 
we share bookings, you know, I can't do that gig, can you, that sort of thing. But there's another 50, 60, 70 maybe who, who I'm aware of, who are out there and we need more, certainly, mm, you know, mm. but uh, I, I, it's just nice to know they're out there, you know. Because yeah. I think, it, again, with the Christians and Media stuff, it's nice to know that you're not a dot, you know, if there's two of you, that's a line. Three of you is a triangle, the strongest of shapes, you know. Good. So we could go on to do decahedrons. We could do. I'm sure Simon would love to. Yeah, I would actually. But, uh, <laughs> Twelve. That is disciples, isn't it? So that's yeah, the oh, there we go. Yeah, it's very to be. Christian number. Yeah, was, that was inspired, yeah. of course, by uh, divine influence once again. And um, we talked about books a little bit, and um, talk, mentioned the first book. I, I must say, sounds a bit creepy, crawly, but <laughs> I loved Hark that we mentioned. Oh, cheers! Not I enjoyed sharp. it. Just really very interesting. And sort of a work of history, really, mm. as much as anything. Wasn't I it? think it was my probably my favourite to do. I think I was the weird guy in Guildford Library in June, getting all the Christmas books out, and they look at me like, "What? Why are you doing this?" You know, well, got to write a book. And and I loved it. I've always loved Christmas, and I've loved cultural history and like why we do what we do. Still fascinated by it. My sort of new project on that is about the history of broadcasting, the history of the BBC. So I'm kind of. And that was inspired by the Hart book, actually, because in I was working my way through history in terms of how Christmas has changed over the years. And to look at the first BBC Christmas in 1922, um, I read that the BBC then had four employees and 30,000 listeners. I thought, who were those four employees? Did they get along? Uh, spoilers, no, they didn't. And um, that's sort of what the new book and the new show I'm doing now is all about, really, and who they were. But I'm... All of those, you know, everything starts somewhere. And so often, especially with the Christmas history stuff, you realise that so many of these Christmas customs that we take for granted or that are now in churches weren't sort of put in place by the church as such, but by just creative Christian individuals, you know, everyone from Dickens, you know, who was a Christian, wasn't a big fan of church, but he wrote a version of the Gospels for his children. And, you know, it's the 1840s. So many of the Christmas things gather apace, you know. Yeah. So there was that one year, wasn't there? Was, 1843, you get a Christmas like, carol, faithful, Christmas carol, Christmas cards. Or, I come with you faithful. I think, you know, the first Christmas card and a Christmas carol both appeared in the same week within half a mile of each other. Oh, <laughs> if, I, great. if I could I, well, be there. I, no. I heartily recommend it, listeners. Uh, Harp, Paul Carenza, it's a, it's a great book. So you talked about uh, the show. So you're doing the... BBC mm. show and that's I mean, and you do a podcast British Broadcasting Century which you've yeah. done I, I only realised this week when I looked at it it was a 72 73 episodes yeah, so we're up to now. yeah. it's and, a significant undertaking and, as well and even then we're only up to April 1923 so we're taking, <laughs> we're taking it very slow so literally while. the latest episode I've been editing literally today is about one day one particular I'm not, I'm not doing every single day of BBC <laughs> history but this particular day was quite noteworthy. It was the first sort of gala comedy concert. Um, and they broadcast from Marconi House, where the BBC was then, into, into Harrods. Harrods packed their restaurant with 4,000 people to hear this concert being piped in. And, and just there's little moments like that that, you know, you suddenly get the first... I, I love the first firsts. So the first uh, religious broadcast, you know, the first... Um, I, just, I discovered few months ago in some research that I don't think has been pieced together by until now by myself and this other academic we did it sort of together that the world the first radio dramatist the first writer for radio Phyllis Twig um, was also the world's first TV chef 14 years later and no one's ever linked the two up because she had a pen name and she used one for one one for the other 
but stories like hers are untold. But there's just these lovely little tales that I'm just in, enjoying getting out there. So that's yeah. why I'm sort of telling it like a book and a, and a show and a podcast, yeah. you know. Brilliant. Well, busy times indeed. And I'm, times. I'm pleased to confirm that our dinner party kitchen crew have also Ooh. been busy. And the waft of braised wildebeest tells me <laughs> that it's about time we got on with a pre-dinner game of My Favourite Things. <laughs> Yes, this is a very simple game, Paul. We give you a series of categories, and all you have to do is tell us your favourite thing in each. Okay. Okay, and our first category is always your favourite book of the Bible. I should say Genesis, and I've done a show and a book about it, but and it has got, it's got all the stuff there, isn't it, really? You know, you've got everything from it's the beginning one, to, to, um, uh, to, to Noah and Abraham and the works. There. But... I can't, I mean, then you think the Psalms exist, don't they? How can you overlook the Psalms? That's, they're beautiful. And, you know, knitted in our, you know, knitted together in the womb by God. And the, the personal, poetic, and, you know, tales of lament. And, oh, there's a Psalm for every occasion. I'm going to go with Psalms, Psalms. please. I like oh, the Psalms. Fair shout. Yeah. I should go, I should go for a gospel, really. Not I? really. But, uh, Do what you like. But I'm going to go Psalm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul, as yes. we've discovered, you've spent many hours in the world of BBC, so we'd like to know your favourite towel. My favourite towel? Mm, your favourite towel. Uh, what, like a tea I mean, I can only think of a tea towel. Is there, are, there, are there other towels? I suppose, yeah, yeah. You, beach towel, aren't there? You know, um, if you mistake the two and go to the beach with a tea Ooh, towel, could that versus, could be awkward, yeah, couldn't could be awkward. it? Yeah. Um, I'm going to go for um, I'm going to go for the tea towel uh, that's got my kids' faces on it. They've done that drawing oh. thing, you know, at school. The school thing, yeah. Where you, uh, you get the whole class and yeah. they are, forever you look back and go, oh, did they ever look like that? Really? Did they? Stick men, but yeah, yeah. Yes. That tea towel, that one that tea towel. Specific, t- good. I was, I was going to push you for a specific towel. That is the specific a, tea a towel. category of towels. Yeah, yep. yeah. They're a bit underrated towels. They are. Where would we towel. be without towels? Mm. Wet. Wet. Well, yeah. Mm. We'd all be slightly damper. We would be. We'd all just be walking around damp all day long. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. Well, our third category, yeah. Paul, is yes. always your top five films. Right. Now, you've seen one or two, I understand, from what you've told well, us. So. I have. It doesn't mean I've got a good selection. No. Does it? it doesn't mean I've got a good selection. And also, I mean, I'm, I'm torn because the obvious thing to do is to go with the classics. But at the same time, everyone does that. You've had, what, 44 episodes? You don't need to hear yeah. another person saying The Wizard of Oz again or, or Shawshank again. But back, I will I will do one of those, so, yeah. which is Back to the Future, because I have to, because it is the greatest uh, adventure film of all time. I did an Edinburgh Festival show years ago about Back to the Future. Uh, and I did a, a, a Back to the Future Part 2 show 10 years after that, in which I used footage from my first show. And then I sort of uh, went back in time to the first show and then heckled myself. It was very confusing. See what you did there, yeah. Um, yeah. And it probably needed more jokes than just a, <laughs> just a big gimmick. But I enjoyed it. And so Back to the Future, definitely. Um, Clue. I'm going to go with Clue. The 1985 um, Cluedo adaptation. Is that the Tim Curry. Tim one? Curry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just I just adore that film. It's lovely. And they've got the three different endings of course, yes. as well. Because when you're in the cinema, you get you didn't know which ending you're going to get. So the the DVD release has all three. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. so it was they didn't show all three. At the no, cinema. you, oh, you never was... knew which you'd get if you went oh, to the okay. live uh, the actual cinema book in originally. Right. So Clue was fun. Um, Back to the Future, Groundhog Day. Yes. And Groundhog Day. Yes. Uh, and Groundhog Day. No, oh, I need two more, don't I, really? Um, well, that's five, isn't it? 
That's three, it would be three. five, wouldn't it? It would be a yeah. bit cheeky to, to to do that. But I'm going to say um, Big Fish. I love Big Fish. That was a um, Tim Burton film about oh, yeah. a relationship with a father and a son. It's beautifully sad. It got me there. Um, and if I'm going to pick another classic again, Mary Poppins is the greatest film of all time, I think. Is that, that's it, Mary Poppins. It's is. the greatest film of all time. I think it probably is. Okay. Yeah. It, it probably is. You know, early each day on the steps of... I better not sing it. You'll, yeah, get, you'll, get, a, you'll yeah. get a letter. You weren't in the original, were you? I wasn't. But no. my, 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 I've it's shown... uncanny. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, I, I've shown my kids um, the original, of course, and Mary Poppins Returns. And, uh, and they prefer the Mary Poppins Returns, which is oh, sacrilege, isn't it? I think that's no good. So, so how did you go about choosing those five then? You got such a, as, as with everything, apparently, you've got such an encyclopedic knowledge of them. Well, um, I, you know the IMDB, the Internet Movie Database? Yes. Um, and there's the opportunity to rate your movies on there. And I've, I've rated every film I've ever seen. So I, I, what I've done is I've looked at there... And I've just looked at all the ones I've voted ten, and and I picked I picked some of those because I've yeah I've rated I think about five thousand different films here. Raised the Lost Ark, good about that. That was another ten. Yeah. Little Shop of Horrors, uh, Die Hard, obviously. We could go on. So how many have you got with the rated ten roughly? Do you reckon? I reckon about, about five thousand. <laughs> exactly, they're all really good. Yeah. About twenty. I think I've got okay. about twenty right. ten out of tens. Yeah. Oh, Charade, I was going to go for as well. I might have to bump Mary Poppins for Charade because everyone says Mary Ooh. Poppins. So even even that's the best film of all time. Yeah. I'm not going to sully it by mentioning it on this podcast. So you can no longer have Mary Poppins. Oh, okay. okay. I'm going to give you Charade instead, the uh, Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn spy fest. I'm not sure I've seen no, that. No, I haven't it's seen that. Great them. film. It's often on telly, mm. and there's a little bit of trivia about Charade, which is that um, they forgot to copyright it. So anyone can show it. Uh, anyone can make a DVD of it or a video of it or put it on telly because they just forgot to copyright it. Wow. Now, our penultimate category is uh, the now familiar Great Eight. So eight quickfire categories designed to unveil our guest's true character. Yes, so here we go. Eight quickfire categories, starting with your favourite author. Agatha Christie. Your favourite type of food? Kebab. Donner kebab. Large donner. Bit of salad. Mint, mild chilli, bit of lemon. In naan bread, not pitta. Excellent. In a naan? In a naan. Oh, radical choice. Very good. We, we, I could discuss that for some time, but we I'm going to worry. That's another, that's another should, podcast. Should we move on? Okay, this is possibly quite challenging. Your favourite television programme? It varies, but right now, The Traitors and its various international versions. Just been devouring The Traitors Australia, and I just get hooked by it. <laughs> just, it's, it's, it's quite a show. Excellent. Favourite sport? <laughs> Snooker? I don't know. Whichever <laughs> one is least like a sport. Probably snooker. Snooker. Still, snooker, I can put on the snooker and just sit back and just go, I don't really care who wins, but they're nice colours. <laughs> it's very calming. It is. Very calming. Yeah. Uh, your favourite band or musical artist? Rock set. Okay. Yep, that's amazing. And it's my wife's as well. That's how we met. That's, so that's nice. nice. I'm nice. smitten for the rock okay. set. Favourite holiday destination? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. The next one. The next, the one I've got to yeah, most yeah. look forward to next. I, I had a good uh, American road trip a few years ago. Doing, we did coast to coast to coast. That was nice. Yes. Wow. And, and that was, we did a lot of states. I need to go back and finish the, uh, the rest of the states. So that'd be good. I'm surprised you haven't written a book or done a podcast about that, having done that. Good thing. idea. Yeah. It starts now. I'm Let's amazed that. that you've yeah. done that. And Let's not do that. That would be into nice. something. That would be a very nice thing to do. We um, we got a, um, a plastic bottle, um, uh, you know, that we were drinking, and we filled it with water from the um, Atlantic, and then we carried it across 
and we released it into the Pacific. Is that not unbalanced oh, the entire planet? I'm, I'm starting to worry now that actually yeah, maybe yeah. we started, you know, is that the butterfly flapping its wings. Yeah. It could be that, couldn't yeah. it? It's what, slightly too much in the Pacific. What yeah. have we done? Yeah. Right. Uh, where are we? Yeah. Favourite chocolate bar? Boost. Or Fuse. Cadbury's Fuse Ooh. that's no longer available. But, oh, they should bring that one back. So difference between a Boost and a Fuse then? Well, a Boost is biscuit-based. Right. Uh, there is biscuit within Fuse, but Fuse is meant to be a fusion of all of their oh, different leftover okay. things, all covered in a layer of chocolate. Okay. And um, I think it was probably about 1996 to 1999, something like that, maybe. There would be a chocolate connoisseur who can tell us, I'm sure. But a Fuse. A Fuse. Be. Excellent. And a Boost is biscuit-based is a lovely sentence, isn't it? I like it? this. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Okay. Favourite board game? Masquerade, which no one's heard of, have they? Uh, <laughs> it's the most fun I've had playing a board game. I think I mean, it's one of these games you don't you can chuck away the board. Really, you don't need the board part. Yeah. It's basically charades, but instead of acting out a charade, they're really complicated. So it's things like um, a French salesman who's fixated on lemons. You've got to act that out, you know. And it, you could you could be there for hours, but uh, great fun trying to work it out, you know. So yeah, Masquerade. That sounds great. Yeah, that sounds and good. I indeed have never heard of it. Well, very good. That was the great eight. Our final category on my favourite things is always multiple choice. So I'll give you three possible answers. And given your encyclopedic knowledge of historic BBC television broadcasts, Ooh. we'd like to know your favourite news. So three possible answers. Okay. The lovely Australian state News South Wales, <laughs> which actually gives us a delightful callback because unlike Cornwall, New South Wales is pretty much entirely full of sheep. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. So New South Wales... Mm. The ever-so-slightly left-of-centre magazine, The News Statesman, mm-hmm. or John Craven's Newsround? Oh, it's got to be. It's, I mean, it's always number three, isn't it? Whenever you <laughs> no, ask no, the no, multiple no, choice, no. it's always number three. And you, you can't beat Craven, can you? No, no, no. It was wonderful. Yeah. I, I did suspect you might go for yeah. that. Although New South Wales is very... It's not bad. Very pretty, yeah. Yeah. But seriously, I've always thought, you're, from the work that you've done and from all your experience, just extend the news to newsreader... Mm. Actually, more seriously, who's your favourite newsreader? Do you think? Oh, I've got a new, I've got a newsreader story. I could tell you. Maybe. I, I, I do about my favourite news. Well, actually, I interviewed Rita Chakrabarti for my podcast recently, mm. and she was lovely. She was a great guest, so I'm going to go with her. But um, I've done some cover presenting on BBC Radio Surrey and Sussex, and it's like the Sunday Breakfast Show. They thought you've got a faith. Let's have you on there. You know, great. And I hadn't realised until literally I turned up first morning at six a.m. start. And when I first started doing it, they said, oh, you're doing the news. The first thing that happens, I was like, first thing that happens is I take over after the news. Yeah. They went, no, 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 you do the news. The news guy comes in at seven. So you've got to literally, you hit that jingle for 15 seconds before. It's a 15 second long jingle. And then you read this bit of paper, paper rustling sound effect. I had to read the news. And uh, and they thankfully, the, they've changed the rotors. The news really comes in now. But about week three of doing this, I, um, I'm still learning the ropes and all that. I have my phone on silent. And uh, I, the news story mentioned Syria, a uh, very serious thing, of course. And my phone oh. thought I'd said Syria. <laughs> oh, no. And right, you could hear on the air. You could hear. I mentioned oh. this Syrian news story very seriously. And then my phone said, need any help? And I was like, no, <laughs> oh, no, no, this is terrible. No, no. And then at the end of it, I said, this is BBC Radio. That's the latest news from BBC Radio Surrey. And it thought I said Surrey again. So I had to chuck it across the room. So ever since then, airplane mode, not just on silent. That's what I learned from that bizarre double act. Very good. So Rita Chakrabarti. Yes, long story short, Rita Chakrabarti. All right, Soundman Mark, you don't often get a chance to contribute. But obviously you spend a lot of time in and around news (laughs) studios. Haven't you? Have you got a favourite news reader? Um, I, I do like Sean Lay. For, for various reasons, he's a very clever chap, well known as the, 
newsreader who got caught out wearing shorts a little while ago. <laughs> um, but he's, he's a very nice fella and uh, very clever yeah. and a, a good presenter. And you must you must have worked alongside all the old greats, all the big names. Oh, yeah, yeah. Robert Dougal. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go quite that far back. Worked with, um, Richard Baker. Richard Baker. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, but yeah, Peter Snow and uh, oh, yeah. Donald McCormack. Peter Snow is one of those, there are many unusually tall newsreaders. I think Sandy Gore was very tall. I'm going back. That, that rhymes. That's too. lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Sandigo was very tall. Very good. So favourite news is uh, John Cave's news round. After all that, well, I'm sure that my favourite things has given us a much clearer insight now into what makes Paul Carenza tick. Perhaps something we can discuss over the Take a Pew Chef's rather fine pickled egg casserole because. It's the fabulous Take a Pew dinner party. The miraculous Take a Pew dinner party. The food is quite irrelevant and some of the guests are hot. It's the impractical, fantastical Take a Pew dinner party. <clears throat> yes, Paul, it's time for the first dinner party of season four. A new season, but the same rules. Obviously, you can have all of your family and friends at the party, but there remain four empty chairs for you to fill. Yes, and to do that, you have to select one person from any time in history, dead or alive, a cartoon character, and a non-domesticated animal. And then on the final chair, we find a gramophone player, which will play the single piece of music of your choice throughout the dinner. So, Paul, your first choice. The one person from the whole of history that you would choose to join you for dinner. And remember, it can't be anyone who appears in the Bible or any of your family. Um, okay, do you do I do I give you the honest answer? I should give you the honest yeah, answer. Yeah, honest no, answer. But, so without wanting to be the BBC bore once again, um, the book I'm currently writing is a novel about the early BBC, and it's main almost mainly from one person's perspective, and it's the first chief engineer of the BBC, Peter Eckersley, and I find him utterly fascinating he said well, my way into this project and I'll tell you for why so first of all in the first world war he's there there's, there's so many facets to his life first of all he's there at the moment for the first time they communicate from ground to a plane in motion that's one thing he creates air traffic control in this country that's another thing then he's mucking around on the radio and he's given the task of doing the first regular radio broadcasts in this country just as a to, so people can check if their radio sets are working, essentially. And rather than just play a, a gramophone record, it's a bit boring, he he breaks all the rules. So he decides, and it's a bit of a tentative moment at this point, the government are like, oh, should we allow radio, should we not? And he almost wrecks it straight away by having such... He's like the goons four decades before the goons. He's playing gramophone records off-centre, drilling new holes in it, seeing what happens, <laughs> covering them in jams, seeing, comparing it with covering it in marmalade, which one plays better. He'd, he was told to just do 15 minutes of speech and he did an hour and a half and made up an opera on the spot. He was just wild. This is a year before the BBC, but it's thanks to him we really have that British kind of sense of humour at the start of British broadcasting. Then was convinced to join the BBC, which he always said he would never do. But he was still wild and therefore he was having affairs and John Reith, the head of the BBC, sacked him. And his wife then went off to Germany in the 1930s. They honeymooned at Nuremberg. He 
had a bit of a dalliance with sort of fascism. He realised the error of his ways just after he built a German broadcast network for Hitler, basically. (laughs) And then um, realised the error of his ways. He left his wife there still broadcasting on behalf of Germany. And eventually he he was um, able to become a spy against the Germans. And this is only now coming out now. He worked for MI6 and shared an office with Ian Fleming, who was writing the James Bond novels at the same time. So this guy spans all of that era. And he is someone I would like to share. Yeah, what an amazing guest. What a guest, What was his name again? Peter Eckersley. I played him on stage last year, actually. And um, rather nervously, before I went on stage, uh, I got a letter saying, hello, I'm Peter Eckersley's granddaughter. I'm in the front row tonight. I hope it goes all right. Oh, my word, I'm going to play her granddad. You know, so she was... She was very kind, thankfully. Wow, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, Okay, so to to compliment... Yes, it'll be a shorter answer. Um, Cartoon character? Scooby-Doo. No further questions. (laughs) Obviously Obviously Scooby-Doo, wouldn't it? would be, yeah. It would be hilarious. Scooby snacks. Yes, okay. A bit of a pickle. He'd be a bit wild, but he'd be funny. He'd be funny, wouldn't he? Dinner with Scooby. Yeah, yes. That's probably... Pretty fair shout. So it's quite a lively occasion. It is. But possibly about to be enlivened yet further by a non-domesticated animal. Well, I, I mean, it's... It's, it's got to be otters. Has, has anyone, yeah. Have you had otters? I think I bet, we have had an otter. I bet you've had otters. Mm, have you had koalas? Maybe. I mean, I want to pick a, one you've not had before. We've had a koala, I think. You've had a koala. What's an ocelot? I've heard of an ocelot. I don't know oh, what Oh, an ocelot, yeah. yeah. I, I should Google what that is oh, before gosh. I invite it to dinner. I don't know, but they do ocelot. I'd like an ocelot. They do ocelot, don't they? Yeah. I think yeah. it sounds good, doesn't it? It does yeah. sound good, doesn't it? But you would like, you'd really like an otter. I'd like an otter. Yeah. Um... I'm going to Google Can we just slot. quickly Google Ocelot? I mean, it's, it's nice to, to know, innit? You know, you want to know who <laughs> you invite. Basically, whenever yeah. you invite anyone to dinner, you, you always do a Google yeah. image search beforehand, don't you? I think I know what one is, but oh, I'm actually, it's not that, It's not as exciting as I thought. It's no. just a wild cat. I'm going with Otter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm just going to go with Otter. That's right. Yeah. It's an Ocelot. Yeah, yeah, I can picture it now. Rayleigh yeah, Otter. I, I think Otter's good. Yeah, um, Scooby would get on, I guess, with with an Otter, I suppose. I was an Otter keeper, briefly. Oh, were you? At a zoo. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Did you write a podcast about it? No, I didn't. No. It was a birthday present. It was one of these like otter experiences. You get to clean the otters out for a day. So uh, my <laughs> wife got it for me. It was, it was fantastic. It was, it was a wonderful day out. <laughs> Marvellous. Okay. Right. It's a great fun party already, and then yeah. but it's accompanied all yes, all accompanied even mm. by the strains of one piece of music to play repeatedly throughout the entire dinner. Can I have your jingles? Yes, I think you that can. might be nice. That might be yeah. uh, might have enliven to... the occasion. Okay, I, even those would get slightly. They probably would do, wouldn't they? They do get nauseating after slightly a while. Tiresome. Yeah. Even I mean, the, the music I actually play at home a lot is Brian Eno. You know that kind of esoteric sort of. Uh, but it's I, I'm the only one really who like I can I work well to it. You know, but my family walk in and go, he's not playing that again, is he? <laughs> so it would drive my dinner guests mad. So I think I probably have to go for something better for background. Actually, Dave Brubeck is great for dinner. Dave okay. Brubeck and yeah, uh, it's very harmless. Take five, all that sort. Yeah, stuff, all the jazz know. fans would be saying, "How dare you call it harmless? <laughs> Cutting edge, indeed." Yes. Well, any of those would be uh, wonderful. Well, I hope you get to enjoy such assembled company very soon, Paul. Now, just before we get all theological, it's time to complete our journey into Carenza world. As we ask you, twelve years from now, what would you like to be doing? Or would it mainly be the same? Or would you rather be canoeing for a summer? Yeah, 
it's just an example. <laughs> yes, Paul, what would you like us to be talking about if we were having this conversation with you 12 years from now? Oh, I'd like to think we'd just be celebrating the 12-year the anniversary of this conversation. I think, I mean, if I'm honest, I'm in a time of change, I think, at the minute. I, I do have eight jobs, and we've talked about most of them. I'm, I'm a university lecturer as well. One day a week oh, I do that, which is just something I started in the pandemic. So I'm doing too much, really, and I think the dream is writing novels by the sea. Writing crime novels. I want to be Angela Lansbury, basically. Excellent. In Murder, She yeah. Wrote, except by the sea, you know. Uh, doing that. So that would be nice. But to, to start doing that, I'd need to start writing crime novels. And all, <laughs> I've not written one yet. So I've started writing one. So it'd be, yeah. be quite nice uh, to, to do that someday. That's the, that's the dream. I, I kind of see in a way for another 10 years, the stand-up and the like. And I'll keep doing... I've, I will always feel the lure to do performances and things but at some point I just feel that call to uh, to the ocean you don't, you don't think that uh, you, you might have gone the vicar route I'll, I'll keep asking the question yeah I will keep you asking I promise I'll keep asking yeah <laughs> uh, and if I hear in, in the affirmative no pressure you never know but uh, we'll see well we wish you every blessing Paul well thank wherever, you wherever life and the Lord may take you I will take those blessings now, very shortly, we would be delighted if you could bring some class to the show with your spiritual pearl of wisdom. Just before that, I'm pleased to report that over our little summer break, we've come across plenty more myths and conspiracy theories about the Bible and indeed the Christian faith. So please welcome to the stage the little part of the show that we like to call... Is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Yes, is it true? And this time, Paul, we are thinking about those somewhat mysterious biblical creatures, angels. With the English word coming from the Greek meaning messenger, there are many mentions of angels throughout the Bible, from two of them visiting Lot in Sodom in the book of Genesis, one of your favourites, to the host of angels in Revelation. Of course, the angel Gabriel famously announces the birth of Jesus, and there is an unnamed angel present when Jesus' tomb is discovered. Now, there is a popular belief today that everyone has a guardian angel, although we're not sure if that's necessarily biblical. And our question for you is this, Paul Carenza, is it true that angels are especially partial to angel delight? Well, I'm pleased you asked this question. I am pleased you asked this question. In fact, weirdly, you know, I mentioned in uh, three minutes ago that I'd half written a crime novel this is true. It's it's actually about angels. It's wow. a it's a who done it in heaven. Wow. Um, and I did for I've only written half the book, but I did a lot of research into angels and the different levels. You know, you get the angels and the archangels and the. And I'm delighted you mentioned the angel delight because yeah. that did come up in my research as something that is definitely a hundred percent untrue. Untrue. <laughs> That's not there. No. They like, really. They like birds custard. But, oh, oh yeah. I always preferred instant whip to angel. I was never an angel yeah. to light person. Yeah. That was, so we Very don't nice. think. So angels, I'm, I'm do, do you think angels eat? I don't know. That's a good question. That I don't yeah. think they do. Um, the odd kebab, maybe. But the odd kebab, but they've got the wings on the... Oh, some of them have got the wings on the face, haven't they? Which might, yeah, be might be given them... Okay, so we don't, no, we don't no, think no, that's, that's true. true. I think it's... Okay. I think it's no. To quote what I lie to you, I think, I think it's a lie. Yes. It's a lie. Well, in any case, thank you for bringing your wisdom to that potentially controversial aspect of faith. And with that, Paul, perhaps you would bless us with your spiritual pearl of wisdom. It's a spiritual
Beautiful jingle as ever. I can't promise to be particularly wise or anything, but I was just thinking what's on my um, what's on my heart generally lately. And I think one of the things I keep thinking about and coming back to is that we aren't as people, we're not as good as we think we are on our best days, but we're not as bad as we think we are on our worst days. And I think more than ever, I'm seeing so much toxicity on social media. And maybe it's, you know, I'm looking at my kids who are not quite teenagers yet, but we can see that coming over the horizon. And we're very conscious of of how easy it is to believe what you are told about yourself, I think. And I still hear that myself as a comedian. You see stuff online. I've had horrible stuff said about me on social media, even in the last few days, um, because I, I dared mention one particular thing, which someone you know, disagreed with. And, you know, I don't want to go down the, the heavy route of culture wars and the like, but culture peace is surely what I would crave more than anything. So I think if we're not as, as bad as, as, as we sometimes think we may be, or, and we're sometimes not as good as we think we are, it's, this is a development of Sarah Millican, the comedian, has a thing called Millican's Law, which is if you have a brilliant gig, you can think you're the best comedian on the planet, but you're only allowed to think that until 10 o'clock the next morning. Because equally, the flip side is if you have a terrible gig and you feel like giving up and you feel like you're the worst comedian on the planet, you can, you're allowed to inhabit that feeling, but only again till 10 o'clock the next morning. And then it's, you wipe the slate clean and you start again. And those are her words. You wipe the slate clean. And you, know, you don't have to dig too far to find the theological motif within that of, of Jesus wiping the slate clean. I'm sure that's not what Sarah Millican has in mind, but it's what I have in mind as I, as I consider that. And I think this relates to another thing I've been thinking of lately, which also ties in with my dinner party guest of Peter Eckersley, who had that um, very unfortunate brush with with fascism and with um, not quite as far as Nazism, but he, he certainly dabbled in those areas in the 1930s, as many did, you know, as they were trying to work out what world we were living in. And in time, people realised the error of those ways. And it's a story of redemption for him, I think, because this guy, Peter Eckersley, came back and realised where he went wrong. Many wouldn't accept him and he ended up spying, as I said, for Britain. And he had that redemptive story. And I think sometimes we hear those words of accusation to each other. And I, I think in, in my ideal world, I mean, in my ideal world, you wouldn't have any of the negative. And in God's ideal world, we don't have this either. But I hear words like, you know, racist, sexist, misogynist used as nouns. And I think they're adjectives more than nouns. I think it's very easy to point at someone and say, you are this, you are a, ra a racist, a sexist, a fascist. And maybe people have said things and done things. I, I've done things in the past that I know I've done actions or had thoughts, which are any of those things, I'm sure. And I've made mistakes, but they are mistakes and I acknowledge those mistakes. And I think if we saw those things as adjectives uh, more than nouns, it shows that there is redemption and hope for all of us, that we're all just idiots walking around on this planet. And, you know, you look in the Bible and you see the 12 disciples who we see in churches and stained glass windows, and they as well, they get things wrong all the time. They are there in the Gospels to be this sort of Greek chorus of people who question Jesus and say, do, do you mean that? And Jesus says, no, no, I you weren't paying attention, were you? No, I didn't. And as a result, in the 12 disciples, you get betrayers, deniers, doubters, people finding their way and trying to improve next time. And that's all that we are doing as well. So I think those negative things that we can be told about ourselves or that we may think ourselves as well. That's just today. And then there's always uh, tomorrow. It's not about, am I the best at this? Am I the worst at that? It's that I can always do better. And that God 
is the unchanging. You know, we change all the time, but God is the one who is unchanging and he has a better plan for us. So I think we keep our eyes fixed on God and making sure that our focus is on that right path. Because like that sort of tanker at sea, if you go one degree off in a few hundred miles, you're going to hit the wrong island. So um, may we keep our eyes fixed on where we need to be going. And that is the way, the truth and the life. It's a spiritual of wisdom. Well, thank you very much for that, Paul. Now, many have said that here on the Take a Period podcast, we leave the worst till last. And I agree. Because before we let you go, we must, I'm afraid, dispense with this. Simon, you've had all summer mm. to come up with something meaningful, so it is with more optimism than usual that I ask you, what is your random question for Paul? Well, Ian, I think you'll be impressed, because this kind of dovetails nicely with our Is It True question about angels and angel delight. Because, Paul, my random question for you is this. What would be the most likely scenario wherein an animal would eat a foodstuff that had the name of that animal in it? Just to be clear, I'm obviously not talking about cannibalism here. What I mean, for example, is a horse eating some horseradish. Perfectly possible, probably make it sneeze, but is that the most credible example? Well, I think the most credible example would be a dog and dog food. Yes. Probably. Or a cat and cat food, maybe. Mm. Or a horse and horse. I could go on, yes, but I won't. Yes. Um, I think discount. To be fair, t- uh, discounting those. Discounting those. Oh, those, yeah. oh, those obvious. Oh well. He's no good. If you're gonna, yeah. if you're gonna, no, if you're it's gonna a fair that. shout. Yeah. It is a fair shout. I mean, prawns eating prawn cocktail crisps oh. again. That is is that cannibalism? I don't think oh, prawn. That's close. Yeah. But I don't yeah. think a prawn cocktail crisp has ever really been near a prawn. Probably hasn't. Has has it? It, has I think that's probably. So in fact, that's probably quite likely because you know you get those unfortunate litterings in the sea or people drop a crisp I mean who doesn't eat a crisp on the beach exactly um, and a prawn just comes along and has a little bit of that it's quite quite possible isn't it and, yeah um, I quite like that one yeah, yeah. I, or, or a pig and pork scratchings you know because again I don't know pork scratchings Ooh. been near a pig that's, a bit, that's more likely isn't yeah, it yeah that's a bit close yeah, that's more likely so yeah. I think I, I'm not just thinking I don't know if there's like a jellyfish eating some or jelly some jelly yeah, yeah that's quite, quite possible that, yeah. It's unlikely though, isn't it? Still, can I don't they eat again. jelly? Simon, so, mean, you're the marine biologist. Um, well, probably with difficulty. Yeah. yeah, they might have to absorb it somehow. Right. But they which are you be... more likely to oh. find in the sea? Some a crisp, or, or yeah. you know, you don't bring a jelly to the beach, do you? No, no, no not no, typically. That's true. Hurl that's it true. in the sea. Although yeah, that no. would be quite. An it's, image. To be yeah. fair, it's not an entirely realistic scenario. No, but no, it's not. And do you know what I hate about this question is that as I'm driving home. I'll think of the perfect answer. <laughs> what about a bat, Ian? A bat could what? A bat could eat some Battenberg. Oh, Battenberg. Oh, That's possible. Battenberg. It's yeah. possible. If you put yeah. a little bit of Battenberg on the lawn. Mm. Yeah. We get bats here. I might tonight. Yeah. I put a little put bit of Battenberg out from yeah. the co-op. Other supermarkets yeah. are available. Mm. On the lawn. I wait till the bats come out because then I could actually possibly end up with a picture of a bat oh, eating some Battenberg. Bat eating Battenberg. Yeah, that would be, that would be a first. That would it? be... Yeah, you could yeah. get you get moose eating some moose, couldn't you? Yeah, that's possible. Buffalo and buffalo wings, <laughs> penguin eating a penguin. I suppose. Oh, that would be awesome. That'd be yeah. wonderful. You could definitely have that. Yeah, or Very. a cobra could go out for a curry and have a pint of cobra. If a cobra and a kingfisher Ooh. went out for Ooh. a curry, you know what, what beer do they order? Oh. 
There's a joke there somewhere. Isn't there? there is. There could is. be very awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Bangalore, I would have thought. You can yeah, have that one. Right. Yeah. yeah. Not that you want it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon, thanks for that. I will never again personally look at a piece of Battenberg without wondering whether it's been nibbled by a bat. But in any case, that was. And so, Paul, it's time for the credits on this particular outing of the Take a Pew podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming along to Take a Pew Towers, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And, dear listeners, thank you for being with us. If you've enjoyed listening, why not subscribe to the show wherever you listen, so that you don't miss out on upcoming Take a Pew fun. You can also find us all over social media, and we have a fax machine in the corner. We're delighted to be up and running with Season 4, so Simon and I will be back very soon to bring you plenty more fun, faith and flights of fancy. But in the meantime, it's Toodle Pit from me. And Tatty Bye from me. Join us again next time as we take a pew. Take a pew.